For all the dads and grandpas in the room, happy Father's Day to you. For those of you watching online, happy Father's Day. I've never been on a cruise. Um, My dad is on a cruise today. Do you have Wi-Fi on a cruise? Could my dad be watching? So, dad, happy Father's Day if you're watching. I've never been on a cruise, but if you're watching this morning from wherever you are floating around, um, I love you. Happy Father's Day. Uh, I hope all of you who are dads and grandpas have a really, really good day. I also hope this, those of you who have lost your dads, or your grandpas, or you have a difficult relationship maybe as a dad with your kids. I hope today you find comfort in your heavenly father in the absence of having a great relationship or even a present relationship with your earthly father. If you brought your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 24 today in our Bible study. We're in a Bible study series called Kingdom Come. We are talking about what Jesus has to say about the end times of this world, and about the beginning times of his eternal kingdom. We're in the fourth week of that series in Matthew 24. If you didn't bring a Bible, maybe you're just visiting journey today because your kids or your grandkids came to kids camp first. Thank you for being here. My name's Christian, I'm one of the pastors. Every Sunday we do a Bible study where we open the word of God and we kind of teach the purpose of God for the people of God. If you don't have a Bible, everything I read will be on the screens. It'll be super easy to follow along. Here's why we are studying the end times with Jesus. As Pastor Christian Gracia pointed out, to us in the first week of this series. Um, We study the end times because knowing knowing truth about the last day will impact how we live today. Like knowing about the final day will impact, should impact the way we live today. So we've been walking in Matthew chapter 24, listening to Jesus answer questions that his disciples came to him with about the end of the world. Here were their questions. There were three questions in the first part of Matthew chapter 24. Um, They said, when's the temple going to be torn down? Because Jesus walked out of the temple and they were like, that's a cool building. And Jesus said, it's going to be torn down. They said, when? He doesn't answer that question in this text, but in Luke 21, he'll say, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, know that that time is near. That time would come in AD 70. Turn to someone and say AD 70. It's on the quiz later, so just remember that number, 70. AD 70 is gonna be on the quiz later. Then they said, what's gonna be the sign of your coming kingdom? We're gonna start like answering that question today. Um, And then they said, what are gonna be the signs that the end is like really near? We spent the last two weeks answering that question. What are going to be the signs that the end is like really, really near? There were six signs, um, four of them pretty devastating in nature, but two of them were what I called good signs. The last two weeks, we actually ended not with devastating news about the end of the world, but with great news about the end of the world. Because sign number three is that faithful Christians are going to be on mission in the church. And sign number six is that the return of Jesus is going to be very, very clear. So while things will be difficult, there's some good signs. And, and here's how I look at it. Even at the end of the world, we see God's grace being abundant to his people. Even in the worst of times, God's grace is present. The word grace in the New Testament scriptures is the word charis. It's the word we get the English word charity from or giving something to someone. And what we see as followers of Jesus is that the grace of God, the gifts of God continue right until the very end and right in the middle of the end that is very, very difficult, God is working and he's working over time. So as we jump into the text today, we're gonna begin to see the grace of his return. We're gonna back up and start with a very clear return in verse 27. We're gonna read through verse 35 today. In the next two weeks, we'll study a little bit about the, what the return of Jesus looks like. Here's what it says in Matthew 24, 27. 
For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, the vultures will gather. Immediately, after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I've got to be honest with you. As I've studied Matthew 24 the last several months in preparation for this series, when I think about the end times, when I think about prophecy, a lot of things come to my mind, a lot of words in education come to my mind. But I think the, the primary word that comes to my heart and my mind when I think about what Jesus says about the end times and what Jesus does in the end times is the word grace. Like God in the midst of the most difficult time in planet Earth, Jesus said it will never be as bad as it will be then before or after. Right in the middle of that, we see God's gracious return for his followers to rescue them. So as we look at the grace of his return, I've got five different, I think, grace gifts that God gives us at the end times as we dig into his return that I just want to kind of walk through one at a time today. The first is this. We'll have to back up into last week's text a little bit, but we see what I call the grace of the tribulation cut short. We see the grace. We see Jesus stepping into a hard time to say, you know what? Um, I'm going to use some grace here, and we're going to shorten this time. Look at verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 24. We see the grace of the tribulation cut short. It says, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again, if those days had not been cut short. Somebody say cut short. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. If you have your Bibles, you might underline or highlight the words, the sake of the elect. Here's what you need to know. While the enemy moves against the people of God. God moves for the people of God. God says, I see what's happening, and because of you and my love for you, I'm going to step in. We see the grace of this great tribulation cut short because of God's love for his people. But this is not just an end times thing. Um, I will not sing over you like God does because I'm not really a singer, and I don't think it would be valuable for anyone in the room for me to sing anything over you. But I want to speak some things over you today. Like God sings over you, I'd like to speak some things over you today. Because the grace of tribulation cut short does not just come for end times followers. The grace of tribulation, the grace of difficulty cut short comes for every follower of Jesus who has ever lived. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that 
Satan's job is continually to accuse us before God and before our own conscience, to remind us what spiritual failures we are, to remind us that there is no reason that God should love us or be willing to use us, to remind us that if it's left to ourselves, we'll never connect to God. But in Romans 8, 31, the apostle Paul steps in and says, yes, all that's true. However, if God is for us, who can be against us? God steps into those troubling thoughts that says, my life couldn't possibly add up to having God loves me. And Paul says, yeah, that's true, except he does. If God is for us, who can be against us? Some of us have undergone suffering that we've literally thought would take our life. The apostle Paul said sometimes he suffered so much he despaired of life. He thought it'd be better if I would die than be alive. But right in the middle of our suffering, we see God's grace cut it short. In 1 Peter 5.10, Peter says, the God of all grace, somebody say grace. grace. The God of all grace, who's called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, after you have suffered a little while, step in and rescue you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Right in the middle of your suffering, it's like suffering cut short because of the grace of God. We're told in the book of 1 Corinthians that when overwhelming temptation comes and we don't think we can live for Jesus and we don't think we have the strength to say no when we feel like we have to give in to sin, we're reminded that grace cuts temptation short. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we're reminded that no temptation has overcome you except which is common to man. And God is faithful. His grace cuts it short. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear and he'll always provide a way out. In our spiritual failures, God is faithful and he cuts failure short because of Jesus. In our suffering, God is faithful when he steps in. In our temptation, God is faithful and he steps in. Paul would say in Romans 8, 28, in everything in life that feels like it's gonna destroy you, God is gracious because in all things he works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. Like this, this thought of God stepping into difficulty is not an end times thing. It's an every time thing. It's an all time thing. It's not a last day thing. It's a today thing. Amen. So if some of you are facing temptation this week, know that the God of who cuts in on tribulation is coming to the rescue. Some of you are suffering this morning. Know that the God who cuts in is coming to end that suffering. Some of you have just been struggling with spiritual failure lately. Be reminded that the God who cuts in is coming to your rescue. Be reminded that God uses all things at all times for all of his people to work for their good so that they might know God and love him more deeply. Why? One, because God is gracious. But two, because God remembers that we are broken. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 103. It shouldn't surprise us that God is so gracious to us because he created us, he knows us, and he loves us. And in Psalm chapter 103, we see a beautiful psalm about why God is so gracious to us in temptation, why God is so gracious to us in suffering, why God has to use hard things to make us better. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 103, starting in verse eight. The Lord is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Thank God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities, thank God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children. Listen, on Father's Day. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he remembers how we're formed. He remembers 
that we are dusty, sinful, earthbound people without him. And he's gracious to us. Listen, followers of Jesus, God chose you. He watches over you. He's got you. And you've got him. Say, I'm suffering. You got Jesus. It's going to be okay. I'm really being tempted. You got Jesus. It's going to be okay. I have failed spiritually lately. You got Jesus. It's going to be okay. In all things, you have Jesus. We see in the end times the grace of a tribulation cut short of Jesus stepping in, but he doesn't just do it in the tribulation. He does it at all times. We also see, number two, the grace of the cross. And you have to look closely But as we look at verse 28 and we just wrap our minds around some theology, we're reminded once again of the grace of the cross at the return of Jesus. Verse 28 says it this way, wherever there is a carcass, the vultures will gather. Now, there certainly is far more than death in view here theologically, but we have to remember the theology of death so that we can remember to be thankful for the cross. So theology 101 would say, here's what the Bible teaches us about death. It would say that death is a result of sin. In Genesis 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, the Lord God took Adam and Eve, the two he'd created, and he put them in the garden to work it and take care of it. And he said, you can eat from any tree of the garden that you want to, except the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. If you eat from that tree on the day you eat it, you will die. And they did. And they did. You say, what do you mean? You said that twice. I know. They ate it, and then they died. Jesus said, if you eat it, you'll die. They did, and they did. So we know that death is a result of sin. We also are told that the price of sin is death. In Romans 3.23, we learn that all sin and fall short of God's perfect standards. And in Romans 6.23, we learn that the wages of that sin is death. But here's where Jesus steps in. We learn, let her see, that a choice has been given to us. Everyone in the room, everyone watching online, everybody who's ever lived on planet Earth. We can either die for our own sin or we can let Jesus' death stand in place for our sins. See, 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for us. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, me, so that he could bring me to God. Christ died for us. The righteous in place of the unrighteous so he could bring us to God. So every human being has a choice. We sin, we die. Or we sin, we repent, We let Jesus die, and we live eternally, spiritually, with God and with Jesus in heaven. Like, we have a choice because of the grace of the cross. And this is where Christians today live in spiritual tension. And you say, what is the spiritual tension? The spiritual tension is this. All of us have a desire for sin to be judged while we have this exact same longing for our people to be saved. So we look at sin and we know it deserves judgment and we want sin to be judged, but we don't, want, we don't want sinners that we love to be judged. We want sin to be judged, but not sinners to be judged. You say, how can you desire sin to be judged without sinners being judged? The cross. The cross is that answer. Believing that sin needs to be judged, but not desiring sinners to be judged means that somehow we have to get the message of the cross to people. Paul would say in Romans 9, 13, his heart, sin has to be judged, but I don't want sinners to be judged. He said, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, my race, speaking of the Jews. Paul's like, I know sin has to be judged, 
but I don't want any of my people to be judged, so I have to figure out how to get the message of the cross to people. The great tension that followers of Jesus live with is this. When we look at the cross, we see, we see the size of grace and the size of sin. When we look at the cross, it's like God's grace is unbelievable and sin is really, really bad. And we live with this tension that sin has to be judged, but I don't want sinners to be judged. Now, that's how good-hearted Christians think. Not everyone thinks that way. Some people think about sin and sinners and we're like, actually, I would like them to be judged. I don't want to call out anyone in the room by name, but two years ago, my wife sent me a social media post of a little boy named Isaiah who wanted someone to be judged for their sin. I want to throw his note to his teacher on the screen. I've been saving this for a rainy day. It rained today, so I thought I'd give it to you. Um, this is what a little boy Isaiah wrote to his teacher after he got in trouble at school. Dear Miss Jones, I'm angry of you because you took 25 of my hummingbird bucks because I was talking to Connor. That's no big deal. I'm only six. I can't be quiet all the time. And that makes you a thief and a crook, and you are going to hell, real hell. The burning one, because you a thief. I worked hard for those bucks, and my only prayer in chapel today was that God gets you to hell fast, super fast, and your new haircut is bad, real bad. Now, you know, you know that that kid's dad was humiliated and so proud at the exact same time of his son for standing up for himself. I'm grateful that I answer to the grace of Jesus, not the grace of Isaiah, amen? Because sometimes my haircut's bad, real bad. And sometimes I'm a thief. Um, and sometimes I deserve hell, the real one, the burning one. When we look at the end times, we see the grace of tribulation cut short. But we also see that in our life. Like, we don't have to study prophecy for that. God does that for me. When we look at the end times, when we look at God's second coming, we see the grace of the cross. But I don't have to study prophecy. Like, I see that in my own story, the grace of the cross. My sin has to be judged, but it won't be judged in me because of the cross. We also see as we look at the text and we continue, we see number three, the grace of coming back. We see the grace of coming back. Look at verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. Please listen closely. Please make sure if you only take one note, it's this one. The greatest end time sign doesn't point to a person. It is a person. Yes. <laughs> Let me say it again. The greatest end time sign doesn't point to a person. It is a person. His name is Jesus. Listen, folks, Jesus is coming back. Thank you, Danielle. Now for the rest of you. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. Yeah. Amen. Like, listen, that like, that cannot be, that cannot just be a fact we're aware of. That has to be something we deeply, deeply celebrate. Danielle got it before the rest of you because she's really smart. My Father's Day gift this morning, this wasn't in my message, but I just feel like it needs to be said. Um, my kids, Danielle bought a book that, what was the name of the book? Did you buy the book or did one of the kids buy the book? Casey, you wrote in it. You remember the name of the book? Anyways, it, it, it deeply, it, it meant a lot to them. And it, and it, 
And it means a lot to me. I think it was like the story of my dad or something. And it was a booklet that had all these questions and like the kids each had a blank. So Casey had her answer and Christian had her answer. Christian had an answer. It was like page after page of my dad and his story. And one of the questions was, my dad is smarter than. And in Christian's, have you read it yet? My dad is smarter than. And Christian put, my mom. <laughs> uh, that's my boy, man. Like, right, like, uh, that's it. Casey wrote a sentence or two for every answer. Christian wrote a word or two for every answer. My dad is smarter than my mom. But she's really smart. She knows it's a good thing that Jesus is coming back. I have no idea in this message where I am right now. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. Yet, yet, I found my place. Jesus is coming back. Yet, it says when Jesus comes back, people mourn. Do you read that? They will see him and then they'll mourn. Like, why should it be sad? People will mourn for two reasons. One... They will mourn as they finally repent over their sin. They're going to see Jesus and they're going to realize he's real. You know who I think this is? I think this is kids of Christian mom and dads whose heart, for some reason, has just not been able to believe. They've just not been able to believe it's real. They know it all. They just haven't been able to believe it. And then one day they're going to see him, and immediately they're going to think, oh my gosh, he, it's real. He's real. Listen to me, Christian parents. The best thing you can continue to do is live your faith, live your faith, live your faith, live your faith, go to heaven. Because one day long after you're gone, your kids will remember. And it might take seeing Jesus with their own eyeballs to make them think, he's real. But just keep living your faith. I think people will finally be broken in their sin and they'll think, this story, it wasn't just a story, it's real. And they immediately will repent and they will be one of Jesus. But then I think other people will mourn because God will finally destroy them because they'll refuse to repent. It's interesting, in Revelation 16, as the bowls of God's wrath are poured out, it says this bowl was poured out, but the people refused to repent. This bowl was poured out, but the people refused to repent. This bowl, like literally scripture says the heavens and the earth will be shaking. Stars will be falling out. The moon will go dark. The sun will look like it's burning out. Like everything in the world will be falling apart. And here's Jesus and people will grit their teeth and say, no, no. I do not want him. I do not love him. I will not follow him. And there will be mourning as they realize not their savior, but their enemy is coming and they're going to lose. He's going to destroy them. It says when Jesus comes, he'll come with power and glory. If you were to ask me, I believe one of the most longed for aspects of Jesus coming is his power over sin. But please listen. Not the world's sin, my sin. Like one of the things I desire most is to just not even have a desire for sin. To not have um, regret over sin. To not have shame over sin. Like I can't wait for Jesus to come and destroy sin in me. But also in the world. In the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel kind of builds the end of the world in these, in these 70 weeks. And the end of the end is the 70th week. And in Daniel 9.24, Daniel said, when 70 sevens, the final end, 
are decreed. Your people and your holy city will finish transgression, put an end to sin. They'll atone for wickedness and they'll bring everlasting righteousness. What does that mean? When, 77, when Jesus finally returns, he's gonna finish transgressions, it'll be the end of sin. When Jesus finally returns, he will atone for wickedness, he'll cover sin. When Jesus finally returns, he'll bring everlasting righteousness, he'll eliminate sin. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel, but I wanna, like, I wanna pause for just a second on these three things. I can still in my heart remember And sometimes it's very fresh what it feels like to commit a sin and then regret committing that sin. That's going away. I can remember looking at that second bullet point, what it feels like to commit a sin that nobody knows about and then to feel vulnerable and wonder if someone will find out. That's going away. I know what it feels like to be hurt by other people's sin, some of it fresh, that's going away. See, when Jesus comes in power and glory, he eliminates sin and all that sin does in our heart, all that sin does in our story, all that sin does in our relationships. Like if that's the only thing that happens when Jesus comes back, sin goes away, I'm all for it. Please send him back in like now. I think the greatest aspect of Jesus coming back is that sin in me on me, around me, goes away. Amen? That is a great, great aspect of the second coming that I cannot wait for. He's coming back, but he's not alone when he comes back. Look at verse number four, we, or number four, uh, point number four, we see the grace of the congregation. Jesus is coming back, but he's not coming back alone. Verse 31 says, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, let's jump back into just a little bit of theology. Church 101 reminds us that God's people were always intended to fight alongside one another and for one another. Like, this is what it means to be a Christian. It it means you live in a community of people who fight alongside you for common causes And they fight for you when you are a cause that needs to be fought for. Like, that's church 101. And I'll be honest, I think the longest lasting effect of COVID in our country has been Christians who remove themselves from community, and now their church life is far more about content than community. They had 13 weeks where they thought, if I can hear it and sing it and watch it and know it, I've been to church. But that was never intended to be the way that church was done. Church was always a congregation of people alongside one another, fighting alongside one another, fighting for one another. Like, that's, all, that's always been the way church is done. So in COVID, I ran the opposite direction that so many people were running. I needed community, and I needed more community. So our elder team went from meeting quarterly to monthly because we needed community. Coming out of COVID, Danielle and I started a Bible study with some couples because we needed community this year. A lot of people say, man, Christian, what, how do you always seem so encouraged spiritually? How do you always seem so locked in spiritually? In 2023, I am either reading the Bible through or I am reading a devotional through with 24 different men. Almost daily, I'm hearing on my phone through text messaging spiritual 
impact, spiritual influence, spiritual fight from somebody who has decided to run my spiritual race with me. I feel like I'm stronger now than I've ever been, not because of what I'm doing, but because of who I'm doing it with. Like Church 101, Christians are always intended to like be this army to, together, moving together. The threat that we could do it by ourselves and not together is not new. Hebrews 10.25, the author of Hebrews told the early church 30, 40 years after Jesus died, like, hey, quit skipping church. Don't neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but continue meeting so that you can be equipped, so you can be encouraged. Like, make sure you're spurring one another on. This community thing is important spiritually. But in the end, we see Jesus coming back with everyone, and before he comes back, he's like, get the church and tell them it's time. Here's a fun bit of theology for you if you didn't know this. Every Christian from all time is gonna be present at the second coming. The only question is which direction you coming? You going up or you coming down? Because in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, we see and we read of Christ's return. And it says in Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 14, John says, I saw the heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. That's Jesus. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Here's what I know about the second coming. I might be coming from heaven, I might be going from earth, but I'm going to be there. And so are you. You might be coming, you might be going, but you're going to be there if you're a follower of Jesus, and you're going to be there with your spiritual community. How sad for us to ride with Jesus' army from heaven to this great second coming and not even know anyone else's name because we tried to do church on our own. We tried to do faith on our own. We tried to do Christianity on our own. Man, don't you want to be riding with your small group? Don't you want to be riding with your men's group? Don't you want to be riding with your ladies' group? Can you imagine the picture? I've never ridden a horse because the first time I got on a horse, I fell off the horse and it almost stepped on me. And now I'm a little afraid of horses, but I'll ride that white horse if Jesus will buckle me in and make sure I'm safe. It's like, giddy up, let's go, man. Like, you might be coming, you might be going, you're going to be there. We see the grace of the congregation present with Jesus. And then we're told, number five, that we can have the grace of confidence. In verses 34 and 35, you can have this gift of believing and being confident in Jesus. It says in verses 34 and 35, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will never pass away. These two words, this generation, have birthed the theology in the church. The church has always believed in a theology called the imminent return of Christ, which is the belief and the anticipation that Jesus could come back at any time. Jesus said, this generation, this generation is gonna be ready and present for the end. So every generation has believed Jesus could come back at any time, the imminent return of Christ. It is a belief and anticipation 
that Jesus could come back, might come back, hopefully will come back in my lifetime. But let me say this, it's not just a belief. It is a belief that if you really believe it, it is a belief that if you really believe it, shapes behavior. You can tell if you have the belief by looking at your behavior. In 1 John chapter 2, we see the behavior of people who believe and live as they believe that Jesus is coming back. Here's what John says to the church, the imminent return of Christ. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The imminent return of Christ makes me better. Not just a believer, but better. It shapes my behavior to get ready to be more like Jesus. So the first century Christians believed in the imminent return of Christ. And in AD, when, when was the temple torn down? AD what? Good job, man. Y'all got, y'all passed that one. And if you didn't cheat off your friends, it's 70 is the answer. Um, in AD 70, when Christians were fleeing, fleeing Jerusalem, they had to be thinking, it's getting really close. It's gonna come in my lifetime. And I bet they were getting their heart right with Jesus. 10 years later in AD 80, they would open the Roman Colosseum. And for nearly 200 years, they would make a sport of killing Christians. Those Christians had to think anytime now. And because of the imminent return of Jesus, they had to believe, Jesus, now maybe you're coming back. I need to give my whole life to you. In the 15 and 1600s, during the Great Reformation, and then the subsequent inquisition of the Catholic Church killing Protestant believers, those believers had to think, it's gotta be getting close. Not only are we being persecuted for faith in Jesus, we're being persecuted by the church for faith in Jesus. It's gotta be close now, and the imminent return of Christ had to help their hearts lean into Jesus a little more. Jewish Christians specifically during the Nazi Holocaust had to think, it's gotta be now. Like this has to be the time that Jesus is gonna come back and get us because we just can't imagine it getting any worse. And they had to believe now must be the time. I gotta get my heart right because it's gotta be really, really, really close. Uh, next week we'll have a group of about 40, including 30 college kids who leave to spend two weeks in Israel. And I will do in Israel what I always do on Israel. Every time I stand on top of the Mount of Olives, the first thing I do when I stand on top of the Mount of Olives is look up. Because the prophet Zechariah says the first place that Jesus' feet will set down on planet earth when he comes to rapture his church in the second coming will be the Mount of Olives. Because I believe in the imminent return of Christ, I think maybe I'm gonna be the guy to get the shot of his feet like descending out, like that will go viral and then I'm gone. But like my, la my last one ever will go viral. Every time I stand on the Mount of Olives, I think, man, what if it's today? And just in asking that question, my heart says, if it's today, you better lean in spiritually. Church, what if it's today? What if it's tomorrow? Would you live different today if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? 
See how that works? The imminent return of Christ is a theology. It's not just a belief, it's a behavior. Because I think Jesus might be here tomorrow, today's gonna look a little different. That's, that's the theology of the imminent return of Christ. That's the grace that we can have confidence in. Jesus said, you can have confidence that I'm coming back and you can have confidence in my words. Heaven and earth are gonna pass away, but he said, my words are never gonna pass away. We need to know that God's promises are absolute. God's promises are eternal. Heaven and earth might pass away. This generation, I'm coming back for this generation. Many scholars believe that means the church generation. I'm gonna come back for this generation. This generation will not pass away and my words will not pass away. Listen to me, church. God's promises are absolute and they're eternal. And until I can look at Jesus, I'm gonna keep looking into his word because that's where I find him, amen? Amen. Let me say it again. Because his promises are absolute and eternal, until I can look at him, I'm looking into his word to find him. And I'm gonna believe what he says, I'm gonna trust what he says, I'm gonna do what he says, and I'm gonna lean into him relationally. The grace of his coming. It's the grace of a tribulation cut short. It is the grace of the cross. It is the grace of him coming back. Jesus is coming back. It's the grace of the congregation. It's the grace of confidence. You know it. What are you going to do? Let me give you some next steps and then we'll get ready to close. What are my next steps? Now that I know this as a follower of Jesus, what do I do? Well, one, you need to express, I think, daily gratitude for God's grace and for Jesus' cross. It is the thing that allows us to be connected to Jesus now and one day forever. I think we need to get prepared and stay prepared for Jesus' return. Act as if it will come tomorrow. It will make you better today. And if he doesn't come tomorrow, act as if he'll be there the next day. That will make you better tomorrow. And if he doesn't come the next day, act as if he's going to come Wednesday because that'll make you better on Tuesday. Does that make sense? The imminent return of Christ changes how I live every moment of my life. Number three. Receive comfort and challenge of Jesus' promises in return. The good news when we're living for Jesus is he's coming back. The challenging news about Jesus coming back, we might have some friends that have still decided they'd rather pay for their own sin than have Jesus pay for it. Might have some work to do, might have some prayers to pray, might have some conversations to have. Number four, live on mission for Jesus for all the world to see. Because when we focus on his return, when we know about the last day, it changes how we live today. Let me give you a couple of verses in Titus chapter two and then we'll close this message today. Look at how Titus, because the entire early church always talked about his return. Look at how Titus talks about his return. Titus two eleven through 13, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we close today, I want to give you one very tangible next step. James says a man who looks in a mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like is someone who hears the word of God and doesn't do anything about it. So I want to give you something really tangible to do. One of the ways we show our community that we believe that Jesus loves them and is coming back for them is we have a week every summer called Serve Week where we ask everyone in our congregation to devote two to three hours to serving our community. Here's what you need to know. Serve Week is really not about serving. It's about showing. Serve Week is far more evangelistic 
than it is about serving. It is to show people Jesus is in this community through his church and he loves you and here's where you can find him. Serve week for me is, I think of it as glimpse week. It gives people a glimpse of what Jesus would do for him if he was here today. Inside your bulletin, you've got this little card. We've got more than a thousand spots for adults and their families to come and serve on serve week. It's July 16th through the 22nd. Dozens and dozens and dozens of projects that you can sign up for as a family. Serve in the morning, serve in the afternoon, serve in the evening, serve on a weekday, serve on a weekend. Our goal is for our entire church in order to show our community that we believe in Jesus and he's coming back, that we serve them two or three hours a year at a minimum. If you say, I need to do that, you can grab this in your bulletin. You can fill it out, drop it in the boxes when you leave. You can take it by the impact center when you leave. Um, and they'll send you an email with some links that will help you sign up, give you a phone call, help you do it. If you're real technologically savvy, you can click on this QR code. It'll pull up all the list of projects, when they are, how many people are needed, and you can plug in. My family of four is going to be here on Tuesday the 18th at 3 p.m. We'll go do that project. But my goal for you, as we learn this summer about the return of Jesus, is to believe it and to behave in such a way that your behavior proves to the community. I love Jesus. I believe he's coming back. I'm going to serve like he would serve until he gets here, but he's coming back. As you reflect on the message, what did God say to you today? How do you need to respond? As always, we'll have our kind of prayer reflection questions scroll on the screen. If you're brand new, here's how this works at all church. Our, our, our church, I'll say a quick prayer, um, and then I'll step back. The questions will prompt you to think about something you heard about in the message, your answer, and then we want you to turn your answer into a prayer. So while you reflect on what you've heard, turn those reflections into prayers, take steps forward so that behavior matches belief as we think about the grace of Jesus coming back. God, thank you for what we've learned. Open our hearts and minds to reflect on our story and how it plays into what we've heard. And God, help us take next steps to you in these next three minutes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.